Heartburn. 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 Created by the University of Hartford Humanities Center Student Fellows. I am Associate Professor Seth Holmes. I focus in sustainable design and resilient design for my research, uh, and I'm also the graduate program director for the Master of Architecture program. Cool. So can you tell us a bit about like what is sustainability and why is it important? Well, I mean, this is that huge question of what you think sustainability is. Um, I often will ask the students to define sustainability and you get all the random, not so random, but often textbook answers, you know, the provide for the needs of the present without sacrificing the needs of the future. You know, that's certainly a great phrase. Um, but I know personally, I like to boil it down even further. And I, I feel like you can boil the term down uh, into two words, which is think ahead, right? And so not just thinking about what I need right now, uh, whatever that be, whether it's in my case, buildings, or whether it's uh, you know, money, whether it's food, whether it's uh, you know somewhere to live, something to do, but to think about okay, how are the things I'm doing now impacting uh, either someone adjacent to me or something adjacent to me, be it um, physically, socially, or also potentially in the future. So it's it's a different way of thinking about your actions, you know, sort of more holistic approach. So that's how I, I see it. I see it more as a mentality and a way about uh, sort of going through life. You know, I'll admit as much as I teach sustainability, uh, I cannot always perfectly practice it. You know, there's all sorts of crap on my desk here that reflects that notion, you know, from the empty soda can that I know I plan to recycle, but it's been sitting there for like three weeks and I should have probably brought my own drink to begin with, you know, so I'm not perfect either, but, um, but I at least think about it and I recognize that my actions have that impact. Right. Uh, and hopefully that makes me make a better decision moving forward. Okay. How do you incorporate your environmental consciousness as a professor into your job or curriculum or like academic sphere? So various ways. So if I'm talking about it in what I teach, uh, it gets threaded into every class, you know, and so I, I tend to teach two, two specific course types. I teach design studio to architects, whether they're sophomores or whether they're, you know, first or second year grad students. And those types of courses are taught in a way that's highly interactive where students come in they bring in work that they've been working on and I sit down one-on-one -on -one with them and help them navigate design solutions and design problems uh, but I also work on that in group settings uh, often sort of in problem-solving ways where students will accuse me of being uh, the Riddler because I'm always giving them riddles to solve but Part of that is using their brains to think critically and think often. Ahead. What's that? <laughs> think ahead. Yeah, thinking ahead, but also a lot of that is, particularly around environmental sustainability, it's that, you know, is always part of the riddle where it's kind of like, oh, great, that's a really cool building form solution, but does that even give any consideration to, you know, 
the heat flow through your envelope, and if it hasn't, well, then you might be providing, you know, requiring excess energy to keep the building warm in the winter, which has this, you know, uh, secondary impact on the environment in terms of resources needed to provide that heat and that energy. And so uh, back to that sort of think holistically and think about all those adjacencies that your actions have. So that's in the, at the curriculum side, uh, you know, on the sort of practice what you preach side, um, subtle things like showing up and putting my bike helmet on the table uh, as I start class, you know, or reference to the notion that you don't need to drive everywhere, you know, and so that's, that's one example. Admittedly, I haven't been able to do that as much lately um, for various reasons, but um, I certainly try to push that as much as I can. How can the average student incorporate um, sustainability into their campus life besides taking courses that incorporate don't bring that. your car? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's probably the, the quickest solution, but I get that that's a need. Um, so, I mean, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ways that, frankly, students are already just for being on campus have a sustainable uh, approach, you know, whether it is walking around to class, which most do. I mean, I'll admit, I've heard the stories of the people driving from, I don't know, F complex or whatever yes. the like furthest dorm is and driving up this side <laughs> of campus. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think I, you know, I see a lot of bikes and skateboards and, uh, you know, self mobility and that that's a big deal. Uh, beyond that, you know, on the environmental side, uh, you know, clearly, you know, sort of, less waste is always better. You know, I mean, I, my, back to my empty, uh, it's not a soda can. What is it? It's a, it's a sparkling, a sparkling water, water right? I don't like soda much, but you know, that <laughs> we gotta, case. you know, we have to, uh, try to limit, um, these sort of single use objects that we all have this tendency to purchase and utilize, uh, when we really don't need to, you know, there's lots of ways around that Buy a water bottle, fill it up, uh, you know, have the, the mothership of juice or whatever it is back in your dorm that you can fill up in that bottle if you need something other than water. But, um, uh, those are subtle things, you know, on the environmental consciousness side. Um, and the, the secondary side of that is, you know, it's a tricky one, which is that sort of social aspect of sustainability and sort of being good neighbors. And, and part of that is, is to make sure that you keep an open dialogue with, you know, friends, family, faculty about what it is you see. And, you know, some people take it the wrong way, you know, thinking like you're being preachy or thinking you're, you're controlling being, them, controlling or the know-it-all or whatever. And that's inevitable. If you're going to like make some comment about, you know, it's like, Hey, why are you leaning against the sign that says no smoking and you're smoking? Like no one really wants to be that guy, but at the same time, if we don't speak up, then society kind of crumbles, right? And so that goes for a lot of topics and a lot of right. issues, but certainly within the sustainability world, uh, you know, we need to use our voice a bit. How do you measure and maintain your own ecological footprint? The bike riding was much more until my son uh, got into a school that is literally right next to campus. And so, uh, as much as I would love to tow him in the bike trailer, which I have done in our neighborhood, 
from our neighborhood to here is uh, a lot of really busy roads that I am not putting my son in danger crossing in that bike trailer. So <laughs> hence in the car. But with that, uh, I made the executive decision in our household that we finally needed. We were a one car family for 10 years, um, which is tough in a suburban lifestyle to an extent. Um, but we finally said, okay, this isn't working. We do need a second car. But when we said we're going to do that, uh, we got an electric car. So we have an all electric, it's not even a hybrid, straight up electric. Um, so, you know, you could do the math on the amount of gallons of gasoline that we have not consumed. And, you know, obviously that electricity needs to come from somewhere and that consumes uh, source energy somewhere else. But uh, in the state of Connecticut, which is part of um, Reggie Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, you know, we don't burn coal. In Connecticut, uh, we have some of the cleanest fuel for producing electricity that uh, is in the uh, in the U.S. So, um, so I at least am doing a little bit of good there. Uh, outside of that, you know, we uh, I I'll admit I have a bit of pride when I push my giant blue recycling bin out to the curb alone without a garbage can most weeks, um, and like see some of my neighbors with either both or just garbage, which I kind of want to go over there and use my voice as I was just saying I should more right and say come on you could probably recycle half of this um you know so those are small steps um but uh even I know as I've already said I could improve on that do you believe that an environmentally conscious person is bound to be more successful than a person that lives according to mainstream economics hmm. you got to define what successful is so I can't answer that, right? If you think success is making money, then no. I think there's all sorts of, the, you know, there's too many other variables involved. But is success, you know, having a fulfilled life that you feel good about uh, on that last breath and last thought, then, you know, I would hope that sort of being more conscious about contributing to the world around you, both environmentally and socially, uh, is going to help you feel pretty good about yourself uh, and what you've done in life. Yeah, and that's the way I think about success, I guess. So I saw that one of your like design interests is net zero building. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? So net zero building is when you look at the inputs to your building in a year, right? So we say, okay, this this building requires so much energy, requires so much water, uh, produces so much waste. Um, and so if you can get an estimate, it's never perfect science, but you basically say, okay, I can estimate how much, if we think just energy, which a lot of net zero focuses on energy. Um, so if we're saying a net zero energy building, we would say this building is going to require so much electricity, so much natural gas to heat it. Um, so much electricity to, for lights and air conditioning, um, pumps, yada, yada, yada. And we say, you know, let's say that's, you know, a hundred thousand kilowatt hours equivalent, right? Something like that. If you could say, all right, well, if my building needs a hundred thousand kilowatt hours of equivalent, you know, electricity slash energy, you know, you can convert fuel into that if you want. Uh, if I can produce a hundred thousand kilowatt hours, then it's a wash, right? I equal that out. I consume 100,000, but I produce 100,000. And so uh, 
that can be done in, you know, various ways. Typically, it's solar panels, right? But it also could be renewable energy through wind, whether that's right there on the building site or whether you're purchasing credits from a wind farm that is built using the funds you provided them to help offset it, right? Um, and that's that's in a nutshell what it is, but it's it's more than that in terms of a mentality of designing buildings, right? And so when I talk to students about it, I say, uh, yes, you can produce a net zero energy building for any building. We can take any generic building, you know, count up how much energy it consumes and then provide renewable on the, you know, to offset that. But particularly if you're designing something fresh or if you're renovating something more significantly, you try to reduce the load first, right? We come in, we say, well, if we add a little more insulation to the roof and the walls and put in better windows, uh, put in better, you know, weatherproofing around the building, we might cut our heating load in the wintertime by half. So now I didn't need, you know, half as many solar panels for that particular situation, right? So, um, so it's all about reduce, reduce, reduce. Um, and if you can get your load down significantly, then that uh, renewable offset that you require gets minimized. And so your costs go down in both sets, right? Both in terms of consumption, but also in terms of construction. Um, so that's just focused on net zero energy, which I think a lot of people are getting into even more and more now. Even the state of Connecticut's, you know, putting funds towards that and Eversource Energy as well. Um, shout out to them, I guess. Uh, so, but there's also others that are looking at net zero water, net zero waste. Uh, that's those are those are trickier. That's like a brand. Yeah, yeah I mean that's <laughs> net zero water is tough. It's like yeah, turn the faucet on. Where does that water come from? Right. You know, it doesn't come from the ground beneath the building. Usually, it comes from a res here. It comes from a wet reservoir. You know, and so how do you offset that? You know, and that's that's a big deal, particularly in places that don't get as much rain as we do. Right. If right. you're thinking about water consumption in Arizona, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, we're lucky in New England, right? So. I heard that gray water is actually a new thing that they're using for like toilets. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually I worked on a project where we specified one of my favorite products, which is this toilet that uh, you know how you have your typical uh, more old school floor mounted toilet with a big basin of water above it that you flush and the water right goes down right. And so that basin had the sink built right into the top of it. Wow. And so that the only, and there was no flush handle, the only way you could flush the toilet was to wash your hands. And it had a little electronic eye. <laughs> right. And so you put your hands under the faucet, the water washes your hands and the water that leaves your hands goes down in the drain and fills the basin. That's interesting. And so it automatically becomes the water that flushes the toilet. So you're, you wash your hands, that water from that instance sits there and flushes the toilet the next time someone comes in. So not only is it using gray water and reducing the amount of, you know, what we would call potable water, the water you drink uh, to flush the toilet, but it also forces you to wash your hands. So it's got this kind of like dual hygiene benefit, you know, so. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of the concept of biomimicry. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So how, well, first of all, explain what that is for people that don't know. And how can that whole, I don't want, I don't want to call it a trend. It's like this, like, it's a, it's cool you know, sort of concept, theory, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So how do you, how, how can that be used um, to further sustainability? So in a nutshell, biomimicry is saying, let's look at nature for inspiration for how to do something that we do or want to do as humans, right? And so some of the best examples are uh, people are currently developing new ceramics based on the way um, oysters and shellfish make their shells, right? Like for us to make ceramics takes insane amount of heat and energy to produce 
the ceramics that, you know, sort of hard shelled ceramics that we're using, oysters don't produce like 10,000 uh, degree heat or something, right? right? So how do they do it? They're making shells that are harder than what we make for ceramics. So, um, so that's one example, right? People are studying how shellfish produce shells under, you know, with less consumed energy at the bottom of an ocean under a huge pressure under the ocean and how do they do it? So if they can do it there, how, you know, how should we be able to do it as humans? But, um, you know, there's a variety of examples around that. Uh, one that I teach in classes, uh, there are actually these termite mounds in Africa where the termites build these, you may have seen pictures of them, they're like, you know, eight feet tall or bigger mounds of dirt that look like chimneys. And they literally are chimneys where the termites live underground. Um, and they dig all these holes out to the surrounding ground. And then they dig holes up through these chimneys. And it, uh, during the day, those chimneys absorb a lot of heat from the sun and get really hot. Um, and at night, the air cools down rapidly in the desert. And uh, that chimney heats up the air inside of the chimney and it creates what we call the stack effect, right? So it's convection, con convective flow where hot air rises up the outside of the chimney and it's replaced by cool air that comes in from the surrounding ground through the tunnels into the bottom of the heart of this network of tunnels, which is where all the ants live. And so it helps keep their chamber cool at a nice constant temperature. Uh, and then they literally plug the holes up during the day so it doesn't overheat. Um, and then they, you know, unplug it. So that if ants are doing this, right? Ants right. can uh, keep comfortable. Creating in, homeostasis. <laughs> yeah, create, you know, be comfortable uh, in the dirt in the desert. Uh, I'm pretty sure humans can probably <laughs> figure out a way to do this, right? And so there was an architect, um, Pierce, I'm forgetting his first name, but uh, helped design a building uh, in Tanzania based on the exact same principles, biomimicry, right? So design this like 12 story skyscraper that use the exact same idea of how heat airflow can move from the outside into the core of this building, you know, absorb heat from the inside of the building and then exhaust through the roof without fans, without any electricity, air conditioning, all it is. Yeah. No air conditioning, just natural airflow. Wow. Um, and that requires different levels of thermal mass in the building requires a lot of openings and ventilation, little electricity around, you know, louvers that open up to allow the air to move and not move, but, um, but minimal amount of energy compared to, you know, a giant air conditioning system that would have to cool the building otherwise. So that's, you know, quick descriptions of biomimicry and, and an example of how it can be used in, in my particular profession, but it should absolutely be things we are thinking about in all, all walks of life. That's awesome. Uh, my last question for you is how can the University of Hartford incorporate more, I guess, renewable energy um, to walk forward as a more sustainable campus and to kind of influence our neighbors, our neighboring yeah. um, counties and towns and cities? So, uh, <laughs> loaded question to extent, but, uh, so as I, I failed to mention, I'm the chair of the environmental and sustainability committee for the faculty Senate, uh, which admittedly, I wish we could do more, but we're all sort of volunteers and have only so much time. But, um, in terms of renewables on campus, uh, personally, I feel like we are a giant real estate owner, uh, and in particular, a giant real estate owner of parking lots, which, uh, are just a perfect match for solar fields, right? And I've seen plenty of examples, particularly in the Southwest, where they cover parking lots uh, with solar shades that help, one, shade the cars beneath them, 
uh, and to produce a lot of electricity. Now that has its own maintenance issues in terms of particularly in this case, snow removal. Um, but, uh, but it's not to be said that we couldn't take such an approach. Uh, in this particular part of the world, wind energy is not necessarily the best resource because uh, we don't have the types of winds that really are conducive to, um, to a lot of electric generation, but it's not to be said that we couldn't. Um, we got plenty of sun, so. Yeah, like today. <laughs> yeah, even in the winter. You know, I mean, it's it's certainly cloudier in the winter, and you end up, excuse me, in these uh, types of latitudes and locations, you tend to orient your solar more for summertime when it's less cloudy, and you're getting more bang for your buck, but uh, so you're going to certainly make a lot more power in the summer, uh, but you still make it power, you know, mm -hmm. more than more than zero. Right. So. Great. Well, it was awesome talking yeah, to you. Yeah, good for you. I hope this podcast goes well. <laughs> Thanks so much. You got it.